Welcome, everybody. I have to do a sound test uh, with this. Is this good? Does it need to be louder? Is it too loud? Is it okay? Okay. All right. So I'm sitting here with a big smile on my face a minute ago with my eyes closed. (laughs) I'm really, really delighted that uh, you're all here that I'm here and that we're entering into this retreat together. It's really a great joy and a great honor to be here with all of you, each of you, for these next two weeks in a way that's really quite unique and quite special in our culture. So first I'd like to introduce uh, our movement teacher, Wynne Fricke. She's come all the way from Minneapolis to be here with us and to offer us some wonderful days of exploring our bodies, moving our bodies. She's a long, long-standing Buddhist practitioner in the Theravada tradition. And she's also has been a professional dancer. Maybe she still is, I'm not sure. Yes, she is. I can see by that look on her face. (laughs) She's a choreographer, and she also teaches somatic movement and dance and yoga. So we're very grateful to have you back with us again. Yes. And I'm also very delighted to introduce Sean Murphy. (laughs) He's a published writer and... uh, a writing teacher in many different venues, including the University of New Mexico here in Taos. He lives here in Taos, so he didn't have to travel too far to get here. (laughs) He is also a very long, long time Buddhist practitioner in the Zen tradition. And this is actually, I think, his fifth time. I think it's the fifth time teaching the writing component Mm -hmm. of this retreat. We are delighted that you're here five times. Yeah, thank you. So as we enter into retreat, each one of us alone and also together as a group, we're creating or co-creating a temporary village a temporary spiritual practice community as we begin this period of commitment to exploring and cultivating and deepening our inner life, deepening our understanding, our insight into the nature of things. And in this retreat, very uniquely, using our innate and abundant creative energy as one of the vehicles for this process. I think it's fair to say that for many, many people there's a tremendous amount of time and energy spent, or actually maybe more accurately expended, cultivating an outer life. Doing things and producing things and acquiring things and going places and 
being somebody, being something, and becoming something, becoming a somebody. These next two weeks will be quite special and quite unique in that none of this is really important or will be asked of you in the ordinary ways of the seeming requirements and the expectations of the world. So whether you've practiced in retreat numerous times before, as many of you have, but not all of you, because for some of you an extended retreat time is new for you. And you may know, even if you've only done it a little bit, that the experience that arises for many of us, probably most of us, various experiences at the onset of a retreat, this sense of entering into sacred space and time, of entering into a, a kind of sanctuary, both within our surroundings and also within ourselves. For me, whether I'm teaching or whether I'm entering into a period of intensive personal practice, there's always this feeling in my heart, as, as there is this evening, and has been all afternoon actually, of entering into a sacred time and space. The sacredness of all of the life surrounding us, the incredible diversity and natural rhythms of life happening all around us here, the weather and all of its changes, the changes in the light, light to dark, again to light, again to dark. This late summer season up here in the mountains with all of the ongoing changes occurring and all of the other forms of life, the community of beings that we share this place with. Birds, many birds, insects, and various other wild creatures, some small, some large. And of course the trees and the flowers and all the other manifestations of the plant life and the air itself. All of this constantly changing, beginning and ending, birthing and dying. The natural world so so very close around us, so easily available to connect with here. It's a great gift that we're not separate from. A great gift that holds us in itself. This natural world is really an incredible teacher of the sacred and the perfectly natural fluidity of diversity and change that just simply is. It's a mirror of the truth of ourself, our nature as nature. So considering that actually nature is no problem to itself, really it isn't. It's no problem to itself in itself. We can learn from this mirror 
of naturalness, the just-isness, the just-beingness, the absolute open-hearted presence, we might say, of this perfectly natural world. I find that it's no surprise at all that humans are drawn to places like this, places where untarnished nature and beauty are so easily accessible. There's a very natural open-hearted connection available to us here in moments of simple, clear presence when we take the time to really, truly arrive and be. To just simply be. So for instance, maybe today, the late afternoon mountain light, or the sounds of, and the changing light of the afternoon monsoon rains that we'll have an opportunity to encounter during our time here. Or just simply an open-hearted seeing of the particulars of how summer displays itself in small and in larger ways. And of course, along with any of this, moments of a silent, simple, clear presence in your body, in your heart and mind, any time of the day, any time of the night. There's a wonderful symbiotic and expanding energy that we're partaking of and that we're adding to in a place like this. One day in the 92nd year of her life, my mother stopped for a few moments during our daily out-of-doors walk, and she stooped over looking silently and for quite a few moments at a flower that was very full in its blooming liveliness. And after a few moments she said, very simply, it's great to be alive. Probably each of us here has had some unexpected unsuspected and maybe even exceptional moments during times of a very simple presence. These moments of clear, unfettered attention. We could call these moments spiritual attention. Our heart, our mind opens, relaxes, and eases in the midst of a very simple, direct presence with things. And this natural world is often the place where this happens for most of us quite easily, at least at first. Sometimes in these moments of spiritual attention, it's as though we fall through ordinary appearances we fall through ourselves, fall through our usual habitual selves into an intuitive place of the essence of things. Our heart, our mind, 
opens with an unfettered receptivity, a kind of radical acceptance in which there's a deep sense of connection and possibility and possibly a sense of selflessness or what is sometimes called a wholesome emptiness, both inwardly and maybe outwardly as well. And then we might touch the boundlessness, the wonder, the very transient, constantly changing radiance of life. For maybe just a moment, we might dissolve with a boundless heart and mind out of our seemingly separate, solid, static sense of self into the surprise of the moment, the just isness of it all, the surprise of a momentary experience of a not separate self. For just a moment, we may wake up to this sense, this unexpected surprise, the reflection of the heart, the mind's really true connection in a simple, unconditional moment. This is where the essential energy of creativity resides and where it blossoms from. This is the root, the basis for our exploration over these next two weeks. And so, here we are. During these retreat days, we have the great gift of being taken care of in a beautiful and very simple way. All of our basic needs being met. While you're here, life is pared down. It's simplified from your usual daily life activities and demands and seeming needs. There's really not too much to do over these next days. Sitting, walking, eating, sleeping, listening, engaging in some moving, engaging in some seeing, drawing, and writing. And most importantly, cultivating and paying attention to your particular experiences of body, heart, and mind. So compared to the ways of the world, there really isn't so much to do over these next two weeks, which I have to say is a really good thing to remember because some of you may have such a strong habit of keeping busy that you might go on creating all sorts of things to do, just simply out of habit. So in this light, one of the things that we're practicing while we're here is what we could call renunciation. And in this case, meaning letting go of busyness. Letting go of the usual distractions that you use, that you engage in to try to relax out of all of the busyness. 
And what a gift it is, this renunciation. It's really not at all so usual in our culture to take time to engage our energy in this way, to really simplify our life and spend time looking inward, to come to a place like this to be, to really just simply be, not become anything or anybody, and not fill up the mind with more stuff. But just again, to just simply be, connecting and looking inward, looking directly at your experience just as it is in the moment. And so we do begin together in a kind of sanctuary, being here together in this place of safety and protection, this place that holds and engenders respect and acceptance. It's really, truly a valuable gift that each of you have given to yourself for these next two weeks and that you also give to each other simply by being here with each other. For just about everybody, there are many different feelings that come up at the onset of a retreat. So maybe things like excitement, joy, maybe a little nervousness, or maybe some worry, anxiety, maybe delight, maybe a sense of relief. Lots of energy moving through the body, the mind, and the heart even for people who have sat many, many retreats. For me, in teaching uh, or beginning a, a personal retreat time, many of these very same flavors of energy move through my heart and mind and body. It's just our human nature, entering into something new. Always a little added energy moves through our body in our heart that has many, many different tones to it, we could say. And how fortunate that we're embodied as we are in this human form, this precious human existence, making it possible to practice, making it possible to be able to look within and to cultivate a pure, kind, and balanced heart and mind that moves us towards the possibility of the liberation that clear insight into the nature of things brings. We're actually a small minority on this earth, (coughs) a small minority in this universe, and of course, who knows beyond. So think about it for a moment. For instance, insects are much, much more prevalent than humans on this planet. A friend of mine who owns and runs a plant nursery here in Taos told me that there are 200 million bugs per human on the planet. Wow, we're really 
barely here. <laughs> 200 million bucks for each one of us. How fortunate we are that we're embodied in the way that we are. This human heart and mind and body are really the most conducive towards developing kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, and the great gift of understanding, the great gift of wisdom. Because of the particular mixture that each one of us has of both pleasure and pain. There's actually just enough of each. Certainly sometimes a little more of one, sometimes a little more of the other. And at times maybe some great handfuls, big handfuls of one, and seemingly not much at all of the other. But the truth is that it changes. It changes back and forth. Within a week, daily, and even within moments. So really this human realm that we live in really offers us the best conditions that we could ask for. There are beings that primarily live in what could be called (coughs) the lower realms, where the intensity of suffering is so great that it's impossible or nigh unto impossible to develop the wholesome qualities of mind and heart that are needed for practice. And I'm sure that every one of us in this room have been in those lower realms at times and know that place of tremendous fire and contraction. That place where it feels impossible to be present with our experience. Where it feels impossible to connect with goodness and acceptance and kind-heartedness, joy, compassion, or any degree of equanimity, let alone wisdom. And then there are what we could call the higher realms, the higher places of existence it's sometimes called, where everything is so blissful that there's actually often very little inspiration to practice. And I'm sure that every one of us in this room have also tasted this for a moment or two, or maybe for a bit longer. Life is utterly blissful. And there is no inspiration to do anything, much of anything else, in that moment. And if we might have a practice, it might just fly right out the window during these blissful moments. We forget. We forget that life isn't always so blissful. We don't forget it for too long because things change so fast. But we might forget for a few moments that life isn't always so blissful. That we, in fact, don't always get what we want. That life doesn't always go our way. In the perfect moment, 
it's easy to forget that in fact we really all still have our spiritual work to do. So this realm that we live in most of the time, this is the place. This is the place where we can open to our perfectly natural capacity of open-heartedly connecting within ourselves and in relationship to others. Letting the inherent, intuitive understanding of the true nature of things unfold as it simply will do, it will unfold. It's said that if the world were water, the whole world were water, and a wooden ring, one foot in diameter, was thrown upon the water and blown about by the winds, that a blind turtle surfacing once every hundred years would put its neck through this wooden ring more easily than one can obtain a precious human existence. So we really are a pretty rare species within the enormous breadth of all of the life forms on this planet. There's an ancient teaching that says those who have a precious human existence with all of the conditions, opportunities, and blessings in place to meet the Dhamma and to practice the Dhamma, to practice the way of truth, to practice the way of the heart, that these beings are as rare as daytime stars. And so here we are, a room full of daytime and nighttime stars. For the next little while, I'd like to um, just begin exploring mindfulness with you. Tomorrow evening we'll go more into depth with the, this very essential aspect of our practice. So, considering for a moment, have you ever had the experience of getting to know someone and finding out that they're not at all like your initial preconditioned perceptions and judgments of them were? I suspect all of us have had that experience at least once in our life. Without mindfulness, we're often caught up and unaware of the initial perceptions and reactions to things because we're so blindly run by our conditioned habitual ways. Without mindfulness, we could say that our relationship to most all of our experience is like this. Everything we see, everything we hear, smell, taste, touch, everything we think is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thought patterns, our habitual ways of experience, experiencing, if we're not mindfully aware of what's going on. And what this means is that we're living at a distance from our experience. We're living at a distance from life itself. And it can be kind of a vicious circle that feeds itself 
feeding the conditioning. And we become more and more on automatic, kind of robotic, kind of like our computers. You push the key and out pops what's already in there, meaning in this case our habitual conditioned reactions to things. So, mindfulness. Mindfulness and investigation are both very, very important in this process of exploring the true nature of things, which includes the true nature of ourselves. And in cultivating our capacity to connect and manifest fluid, open-hearted, creative expression. We all have so many long-standing and deep habits that we're not aware of. Habits that keep us shut off, closed down. We could say that mindfulness is essential, essentially about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus internally. To really see things as they truly are. Maybe seeing and knowing as though for the very first time. And that's really helpful. Mindful presence is a powerful way of changing our mind, changing our heart, changing the way we relate to ourselves, to people, things, relate to situations, relate to this world in its specifics and as a whole. Connecting with an open-hearted, clear awareness allows for the release and the transformation of our painful, unskillful habits. It's very, very powerful. And so I'd like to offer you a definition of mindfulness that I think will be helpful as we explore the notion of self and the reality of no-self or not-self in relationship to the various creative modalities that you'll be engaging in during these next two weeks. Mindful awareness is about paying a kind of extraordinary attention, a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting attention to present moment experience, both your inner experience and in relationship to outer phenomena. It's not our usual training to be so present in the moment with what's happening in our heart, our mind, and our body, and in relationship to what's occurring right in front of us and all around us. And so we train the heart, we train the mind slowly and with great care and sensitivity to just simply see and know what is. What is this? How is it right here, right now? And as it goes along, sometimes we might feel 
like it's a magical relationship to things. People have expressed that at times. And by magic, I really don't mean the magician's magic that creates an illusion and then pulls us into that illusion. The seeming magic of mindful awareness is the magic of a connected, interested, open-hearted, mindful presence that takes us out of the illusion, takes us out of delusion, and brings us directly into reality. And so we have two wonderful weeks ahead of us. This unique and really wonderful practice opportunity. Offering us a time of exploration, surprise, joy, and insight. Through the process of movement, seeing drawing, and writing, we'll intuitively investigate what it is that stops up the creative energy that's an absolutely natural part of our humanness. and what it is that, in fact, allows this essential creative energy to flow freely within each of us. Some of the time it might not be so easy. And at at times it may be quite challenging. But all the while, your practice here also includes the potential of bringing forth amazement, awe, joy, beauty, and illumination. Previous students have spoken about how this emphasis on exploration and inquiry rather than expertise offers a bridge to help carry their practice into their daily lives. As we enter into this period of spiritual practice, there are a few specific supports that are readily available here for you. So now I'd like to just briefly look at these while with you during this last part of our first evening together. Your first support is the wonderful gift of silence. This silence that very gently holds us in itself. Silence is really quite amazing in certain ways. It doesn't expect anything. It doesn't judge. Silence is infinitely patient, boundlessly spacious, open, allowing, and accepting. This container of silence that has no boundaries and that everything comes out of and returns to. And of course, within the silence, there will be and are all kinds of sounds. All kinds of sounds that arise and pass. You'll hear the sound of my voice, of Wynne's voice, of Sean's voice, and probably, possibly other voices as well. You might hear sighs, maybe cries, maybe laughs, footfalls, and other bodily moving sounds. 
the occasional roar of engines, the sound of birds, insects, and maybe the howling of coyotes on some nights. There'll be wind and rain sounds, and maybe the rumble of thunder and the crack of lightning. The myriad sounds of the human and the natural world, all arising and passing in the midst of silence. Sometimes we interpret noise or interpret sound as noise. And I think it's very important to note that this is an interpretation. And to notice it, watch it, watch your mind. Is this or that sound noise? What happens if it's being taken in and interpreted as noise? Is your heart open to just simply hearing and receiving the sound? Or is there a contraction? Some form of aversion, a feeling of resistance, a feeling of being disturbed, which in turn creates a sense of separation. If it's just a sound, our relationship to it is one of open-hearted presence, acceptance, meaning just simply and directly connecting with hearing and knowing. Knowing maybe the tone or the quality of the sound, which you might perceive as pleasant or you might perceive it as unpleasant, along with the arising and the passing nature of the sound itself. All sound arises and passes. And as we all well know, we're not always in this relationship to sound. So with an open heart, and an open mind. Just mindfully notice. Notice your relationship and response or reaction to sound. And noticing it without judgment in the midst of silence. Sometimes within silence it feels as though all of the windows of the world, all the windows of the universe of life itself have been thrown wide open. And when this is our experience, we may have a sense of a very wonderful freshness, as though open-hearted receptivity and fresh clarity have been allowed in. There's an amazing thing about silence when we really truly begin to hear it, when we really truly begin to drop into it. We find that it's not dead. It's not flat. It's alive. It charges the air, we could say. I've been told that the people from Thailand have a number of words for silence that delineate its, delineates its specific qualities. It can be helpful and even illuminating to bring awareness to the particular specific qualities of silence at times. It's aliveness. It's really a precious aspect of our retreat life.
as many of you know for yourself, most people, somewhere along a retreat or by the end of a retreat, feel that silence is one of the most precious aspects of retreat time. Because it holds everything, but doesn't hold on to anything. Everything just simply comes and goes in the spacious, patient acceptance of silence. And again, as I've already said, the key here is that you don't have to be anybody. You don't really have to be anybody special. You don't have to present yourself. You don't have to be a somebody or become a somebody. You just simply be. And what a great, great relief it is to just simply be. It's not so easy sometimes because we have lots of old habitual ways. Silence is where we really learn to listen, to see, and to understand. In this container of silence lies the possibility of the boundless capacity of our heart to be known, to be experienced. This is where and how we begin to see and know our deepest, truest self, or more accurately, not-self where that notion of me, mine, and I evaporates into the truth of all things. And we begin to know the selfless, interconnected, interdependent nature of all things. With these insights coming directly from our own experience, not from the intellect. And we begin to find out that this is where, really, where the essential energy of creativity quite naturally flows from. So this is our first support, silence. And I always like to take some time to explore it at the onset of a retreat because it's really so much more than just not talking. Our second support is taking refuge. And as you all know, as we all know, people take refuge in all kinds of things. In all the various things, the stuff, the material part of aspect of the world on the physical plane. And also people take refuge in all kinds of various ideas and beliefs and conjectures on the mental plane. We could call this virtual refuge, which creates virtual happiness in this constantly changing ephemeral world. So taking refuge in the context of supporting our practice. What does it mean in this context? One of the ways that we might recognize and experience refuge is as a place of shelter, a place of protection and safety, and as I've already mentioned, a sacred space, a sacred place. I once found a a dictionary definition 
of the word refuge as a port of shelter to vessels in stormy weather, which is very much certainly relevant to some periods of our practice and certainly also very relevant to various periods of our life as our practice. Refuge is often experienced as a place of strength and clarity, both inwardly and also outwardly, such as the strength and the clarity of those around us, our teachers and our spiritual friends who are here on the path with us. The Buddhist teaching can be thought of as a kind of building with its own distinct foundation and stories and stairs and a roof. And like any other building, the teaching also has a door. And in order to enter it, we have to enter through this door. The door of entrance to the teachings of the Buddha is going for refuge. Going for refuge to the three jewels, the three treasures. And the first of these is the Buddha, which for many people means the historical Buddha, the fully enlightened teacher, Gautama Buddha. We could say our Buddha, even though it was a few thousand years ago. Taking refuge in our Buddha. This can bring, bring us inspiration and bring us energy for our practice. We might, in fact, reflect on the purity of the Buddha's heart and mind the heart that's free from anguish, free from confusion, a heart, a mind that's totally free from all suffering. We might reflect on the great and the amazing accomplishments of the Buddha, which can inspire us towards a more sustained and greater effort with our own practice. And lastly, an important aspect of taking refuge in the Buddha is that we're taking refuge in our own innate awakened nature. Taking refuge in what is really the truth of ourselves, what in some sometimes is called our original face. Our true nature isn't something other than us. It isn't somewhere outside of us. It's not something to get. But it's right here in our heart. And it's to be known. So from this perspective, we can say that taking refuge in the Buddha is a symbol of faith. Faith in our deepest and our most expansive potential. The second jewel or the second treasure that we take refuge in is the Dhamma the teachings of the truth, the way of things, the universal laws, the teaching, teachings of the Buddha. We could say that taking refuge in the Dhamma is taking refuge in what is really actually true, moment to moment to moment. Taking refuge in how it really truly is. So when we take refuge 
in the Dhamma, we're aligning ourselves with the practice of mindful awareness. Aligning ourselves with the practice of insight, the practice of understanding. This practice that asks us to look directly and deeply at how it is. And in this, really beginning to drop our expectations, drop our habitual patterns of thinking and seeing and knowing, as well as the habit that many of us have of relying on others to tell us how it is. So this second aspect of taking refuge is in the jewel of the Dhamma. The third jewel that we take refuge in is the Sangha. And the word Sangha is usually translated as community. Traditionally and historically, the Sangha is the monastic community of the Buddhist monks and nuns. Those who have totally devoted their lives towards liberation. And since the time of the Buddha, and up until recent times, it's really primarily the monastic Sangha who have held and offered the teachings and the practices. And really, truly, if it wasn't for this monastic Sangha over the centuries, all of us in this room here would not be sitting together this way this evening. In more recent times, the Sangha has come to mean not just the monastic Sangha, but also the community of lay teachers and the community of lay practitioners. There are moments when I take refuge in the Sangha, when there's a sense of this incredibly vast expanse of human beings in this world, past and present, this incredible Dhamma family that I'm connected to through this process of awakening. And it's quite awesome when that comes up for me. It brings a tremendous amount of inspiration and faith in the process and faith in myself as I engage in the process. Not too long ago, I heard about an app uh, for tablets and cell phones called Insight Timer. Some of you are probably familiar with the Insight Timer. Besides offering various bell tones uh, for our meditation practice, this wonder of the modern world tells us how many people anywhere in the world are meditating at the moment using this app to ring a bell for their practice. I mean, that's incredible. You can see how many people use this app anywhere in the world, are meditating right then with you. Pretty amazing. And so we're taking refuge in each other, right here, right now. The support, the encouragement, and the inspiration that we receive from and that we give to each other. So very, very necessary on this important, powerful, and sometimes difficult journey. And as you all know, our culture here in the U.S. 
isn't very encouraging or very supportive in relationship to engaging in this journey. As we make our way, we find that it's very difficult, actually, if not impossible, to practice totally alone. We need Sangha. We need the support, the inspiration, and the strength of community to engage in and to continue along the journey. So in relationship to the refuges, I wanted to uh, share something a little bit unusual with you. In the traditional Indian method of exposition, no account or treatment of a theme is considered complete unless it's been illustrated by similes. So I'd like to take a look with you um, a brief look at some of the classical similes that are uh, have, were used in uh, traditional English uh, culture at the time of the Buddha uh, and, and after the Buddha as well, probably, for objects of refuge. Though there are many, many beautiful similes uh, offered in the text, we'll limit ourselves to four particular ones that I especially like and find to be actually a wonderful example and a tribute uh, to the innate creativity that resides in each one of us and that resided in the uh, human beings in India many, uh, many a long time ago that came up with these similes. So here they are. The first simile compares the Buddha to the sun for his appearance in the world is like the sun rising over the horizon. His teachings of the true Dhamma is like the net of the sun's rays spreading out over the earth, dispelling the darkness and cold of the night, giving warmth and light to all beings. The Sangha is like the beings for whom the darkness of night has been dispelled, who go about their affairs enjoying the warmth and radiance of the sun. The second simile compares the Buddha to the full moon, the jewel of the nighttime sky. His teaching of the Dhamma is like the moon shedding its beams of light over the world, cooling off the heat of the day. The Sangha is like the persons who go out in the night to see and enjoy the refreshing refreshing splendor of moonlight. The third simile uh, in the third simile, the Buddha is likened to a great rain cloud spreading out across the countryside at a time when the land has been parched with a long summer's heat. The teaching of the true Dhamma is like the downpour of the rain, which inundates the land, giving water to the plants and vegetation. The Sangha is like the plants, the trees, shrubs, bushes, and grasses, which thrive and flourished when nourished by the rain pouring down from the clouds. And the last, the fourth simile, compares the Buddha to a lotus flower, the paragon of beauty and purity. Just as a lotus grows up in a muddy lake, but rises above the water and stands in full splendor, unsoiled by the mud, 
So the Buddha, having grown up in the world, overcomes the world and abides in its midst, untainted by its impurities. The Buddha's teaching of the true Dhamma is like the sweet, perfumed fragrance emitted by the lotus flower, giving delight to all. And the Sangha is like the host of bees who collect around the lotus, gather up the pollen, and fly off to their hives to transform it into honey. So, taking refuge. A wonderful support for all of us practicing together over these next two weeks. Refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. The third support for all of us uh, during this retreat is the practice of sila. And sila being a Pali word that means living ethically in relationship to all forms of life. Living with a deep moral sensitivity and respect to and with all forms of life, including ourselves. The Buddha offered these particular teachings and practices in the form of precepts or guidelines. Guidelines meaning that they're not rigid rules laid down on us from the outside, but rather the basis, rather the ground of our practice. The underlying principle of the precepts is non-harming. The intention and the practice of sila is to connect to all forms of life with a caring heart, honoring life in all of its forms, and then to act from this place. And some words from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada, called harmlessness, the piece called harmlessness. All beings tremble before violence. All fear death. All love life. See yourself in others. Then whom can you harm? What harm can you do? One who seeks happiness by hurting those who seek those others who seek happiness will never find happiness. For your sister, your brother is like you. Each one wants to be happy. Never harm her. Never harm him. And when you leave this life, you too will find happiness. As our practice deepens and as it matures, we come to understand what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on the deepest level and what brings suffering, confusion, and what brings dis-ease. Any one of these guidelines may light up as a point of practice for us at any moment during this retreat. While we're sitting or walking, eating, during the movement or seeing drawing or writing practices. And we bring our attention right into the present moment's experience. And this offers an opportunity for the clarity of mindfulness 
investigation and understanding, wisdom to arise. I'd like to share a particular rendition of these guidelines as uh, this particular rendition uh, clearly tells us why the, re- uh, the guidelines are, an essential, are essential for a peaceful life. And this, uh, this comes from Stephanie Kaza, um, who at the time when she wrote this was a member of the Green Gulch uh, Zen Farm. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. In this retreat, everyone will practice with the five precepts for lay practitioners. And I'll also offer the opportunity for anyone who's interested to practice with the eight precepts for lay practitioners. And you can do this uh, anywhere along the way of the retreat if you're interested. The refuges and precepts will be offered at the beginning of each Dhamma talk evening. And this evening we'll uh, take the refuges and precepts in just a few moments as soon as uh, as I'm done with the Dhamma talk. So the three supports that are here for us over these next two weeks. Silence, refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and the precepts, or the guidelines. And closing the talk with two short poems. One called Tillico Lake, the first called Tillico Lake from David White. In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface and say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There 
in the cold light reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. And the closing poem for this evening comes from Anais Nin, the writer Anais Nin. And then the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And so now we'll take the refuges and the precepts together. Is there anyone uh, here right now who wants to do eight precepts? No. Okay, so we'll do one person. Okay. Does, oh, right. You didn't all take them. Some of you didn't, some of you didn't. Chris will get them. Mm-hmm. Yes? I was wondering if you could say more about uh, what you mean by uh, using the jewels of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say any more right now, but... Uh, It'll become obvious. <laughs> Let's put, just put it that way. There's two sheets, chant sheets, the refuges and the precepts, and then our chant for tomorrow morning. So we will do uh, eight precepts this this evening. Those of you who aren't taking eight precepts, just chant five. (laughs) And we chant them in Pali. And I do not do call and uh, response. We chant them all together. I'll chant them. We'll be a little bit slow, so uh, you can do it with me. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. 
Buddham Saranangachami Dhammam Saranangachami Sangam Saranangachami Dutiyampi Buddham Saranangachami Dutiyampi Dhammam Saranangachami Dutiyampi Sangam Saranangachami Tatiyampi Buddham Saranangachami Tatiyampi Dhammam Saranangachami Tatiyampi Dhammam Sangam Saranangachami Panati Pata Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Adina Dana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Abrakmacharya Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Musawada Veramani Sikapadam Madhyami Sura Mereya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Vikala Bojana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vipusanatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Everyone Idam me silam maga palanyanasa pachayo o tu. So anyone who is now doing or decides to uh, practice with the eight precepts, you need to leave a note on the bulletin board for the cook to tell her that you're not eating supper. So she puts out the juice uh, for you. And if you decide to go off eight precepts, you have to leave a note for the cook and tell her that you will be eating supper from such and such date. (laughs) Okay. So I hope you all have a good sleep. Rest. Sometimes up at altitude, if you're not used to it, you probably said that. It can be a little bit... It takes a day or two to get used to it, so you might not sleep as well as you... If you live at sea level, you might be a little antsy. <laughs> but it'll shift. So sleep as well as you can. Get some rest. And tomorrow morning, we start early.
we might sit for a few minutes. I want to say this first, just briefly. Yeah. Um, tomorrow morning we start early. Uh, we meet here at 5.45 and we have a sit and we do a metta chant, which you have a printout for, and then breakfast following that. So I'd like to sit uh, for about 15 minutes right now. So settle in. Maybe stand up and stretch for just a moment. That would be good. Sit down and stretch or stand up and stretch. Let the kinks out and uh, move your body around a little bit. And then we'll sit for about 15 minutes. actually have a half hour sit, but I think we'll be sit for 15 minutes.